When we first started dreaming about the Living Martyrs series, we had trouble narrowing down which living martyrs we wanted to talk about. Throughout scripture and the history of God's people, there have been many, many people who by their commitment to scripture, truth, and the well-being of God's people and the church have given their lives both metaphorically and literally to the way of Jesus. For every story you're hearing in this series, there are countless other stories that we wish we had the time to talk about. Stories like Anne Hutchinson, who boldly taught the word of God in her home in Puritan society, or Mother Teresa, who wrestled through doubts and questions while devoting her life to caring for those in need, or the church mothers of Emmanuel AME, who courageously chose hospitality and forgiveness in the midst of unimaginable grief. The point of these stories is not to learn how to die, but to learn how to live. Dying well is really important. And just this past week, a well-known pastor named Tim Keller wrote an article about what the knowledge of his imminent death has revealed in him when it comes to his faith. The ways that the rubber of his trust and belief in Jesus has had to meet the road of actual suffering and that the platitudes that he once wrote and said have had to become real. But for most of us, what we're primarily concerned with now is living well, living with integrity, making a difference, being a kingdom builder, and leaving a legacy. So while the stories of martyrdom teach us what it looks like to bravely face death with the knowledge that something better awaits us on the other side, stories of martyrdom also have to do with what it means to live fully now in such a way that our impact is undeniable, even if it's unpopular. Today, we get to talk about the life and death of one of my absolute favorite theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German-born theologian who served the church at the same time that the Nazis began to rise to power. And Bonhoeffer was one of the first theologians I ever read. And so he holds a special place in my heart. In fact, I still keep a notebook of quotes and reflections that I started when I was a teenager and I first began reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's works, including The Cost of Discipleship, where he drew this distinction between cheap grace, which is a grace without discipleship and without the power of the cross, and costly grace, this idea that the gospel has to be sought again and again and again in our lives. And I first began to understand through Bonhoeffer's words, the power and the story and the message and the requirements of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's when the theology of Bonhoeffer started to make an actual difference in the way I lived my life. Bonhoeffer, he shaped my heart as a teenager. And because of that, he's remained one of my absolute favorite theologians ever since. He taught me and he can teach us all not only what it looks like to bravely face an earthly end and an eternal beginning, but also what it looks like to live fully now. Bonhoeffer was born to a family that was fairly non-religious. And with his great talent for music, he shocked his family when he announced as a 14-year-old that he wanted to become a theologian. After studying at the University of Berlin and earning his doctorate in theology, Bonhoeffer went on to serve congregations in Spain and New York. And it was there that Bonhoeffer learned the importance of standing with the oppressed and with taking both scripture and Christian community really seriously. And at the beginning of the 1930s, Bonhoeffer returned to Berlin just in time to begin to experience the rise in the power of Hitler and the Nazi party. While some in the German church welcomed this new rise to power, Bonhoeffer expressed his concerns with Hitler and the dangers of this new idolatry, even doing so in a radio broadcast that was cut off mid-air. 
Later, Bonhoeffer, alongside other popular German theologians like Karl Barth, who were growing increasingly worried that the ideology and the beliefs of the Nazi party were at risk of infiltrating the church's own theology and teachings, they formed something called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church stood in stark contrast to the rising German Christian movement, declaring in its foundational document known as the Barman Declaration these six ideas. The first was that the source of revelation is only the word of God. Jesus Christ and any other possible sources such as earthly powers will not be accepted by the church. They also said that Jesus Christ is the only Lord in all aspects of personal life and that there should be no other authority. And they said that the message and the order of the church, it should not be influenced by the current political convictions and that the church should not be ruled by a leader. There's no hierarchy in the church, that the state should not fulfill the task of the church and vice versa, that the state and the church should both be limited to its own business. And so therefore they said they reject the subordination of the church to the state and the subordination of the word of God and the spirit to the church. But Bonhoeffer's convictions in this area, even though they sound powerful and compelling, even for us today, they were anything but easy. And as the pressure intensified, Bonhoeffer actually left Germany and took to London to serve a German church there. But while he was there, he felt this need to return to Germany in order to share in its struggles and serve the people that God had originally called him to. And after the Confessing Church's seminary had been closed down by the government, Bonhoeffer took to running underground seminaries throughout Eastern, Eastern Germany in order to continue to educate God's people and form leaders who were going to stand opposed to the increasingly dangerous Nazi party. And this part of Dietrich's life that I actually find most interesting and most applicable to all of us, his insistence to continue to gather God's people together in order to read the scriptures and be formed into the image of God in the middle of cultural opposition. Bonhoeffer knew that when truth is at a premium, firm foundations matter. While Bonhoeffer's opposing forces, the Nazi party, are known today to be sinister and evil, their infiltration into Germany, it was unopposed by many. Some even saw it as beneficial. The cultural lies spread by the party were like a boiling pot of water, and there were some who only recognized its dangers until it was too late. But while many of us may not face cultural forces today that are as clearly and explicitly evil as the Nazi party, we all experience cultural forces today that disguise themselves as truth that are actually anti-scriptural lies. Things like that cutting corners is just what we do, or that having more things means more happiness, that following Jesus can be a convenient add-on to our lives instead of a radical reorientation of our lives, that we can find salvation in mere morality rather than in coming to the cross or that our identity lies in what we do instead of who we've been created by and what we've been created for. You see, cultural lies, they need to be dismantled. And Bonhoeffer understood that the best way to dismantle cultural lies was to build firm scriptural foundations that helped people to see their need for God and their need for one another. As I reflected on Bonhoeffer's seminaries and of the work that came out of it, this book called Life Together, this short but incredibly challenging book that dives deeply into the need for authentic, confessing, humble church community, I couldn't help but think about Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Let's read it together. You, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, perhaps what's one of the most famous verses for us, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul begins by listing what Timothy has followed, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, and even his persecution and suffering, Paul is not engaging in mere braggery. Instead, he's helping Timothy to see that these values and his character are absolutely critical for the life of a Jesus follower. In fact, he goes on to explain to Timothy that everyone who desires to live a godly life just as Paul has been living in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, those that don't display this character and are instead evil or imposters will be on a character decline. They're going to go from bad to worse. He then instructs Timothy to continue to build on the foundation set before him, what he's both learned and he's firmly believed. This leads us to three foundational questions from Paul to us today. The first is this, who are my heroes? For Paul, it's not only enough that Timothy has learned the truth of God and believed it, but that he's able to remember and trust who he learned it from. A few years ago, someone taught me this phrase that we are what we behold or we become like the things or the people that we look at and admire. If our primary heroes in this life are athletes or successful business people or politicians or influencers, we'll soon find ourselves adopting their strategies, their techniques, their language, their goals, and even their plans. But as followers of Jesus, there's a reason why we're continually warned against idolatry. And there's a reason why Bonhoeffer in the Confessing Church was warning German Christians against placing Hitler or the Nazi party in the position of Lord or leader over the church. Because beholding and ascribing to any leaders other than Jesus is incredibly dangerous. In trying cultural times, we are invited to reevaluate and reconsider who our cultural foundational heroes are and to set before us leaders that carry actually admirable traits, beginning with Jesus himself and with those within scripture that we see lead humbly and rely on God's will. You see, learning their lives and following their direction, it's our primary aim. Secondly, we're invited to ask this foundational question, what is my sacred text? A foundational element of Timothy's faith and ours is our connection with what Paul calls the sacred writings or the scriptures themselves. The scriptures have the power to give order to our lives, to realign our priorities, to bring us to humble repentance, to fill us with good words so that we can do good works and to bring us both comfort that leads to rest and holy discomfort that leads us to action. 
Scripture is foundational for how we view God and ourselves and our world. And as Paul says, it is the only thing that's able to make us wise for salvation through faith. It is entirely transformational. For those who follow Jesus, we have no sacred text that we turn to besides Scripture. And for Bonhoeffer, one of his primary concerns for the confessing church was that the truth of Scripture would not be watered down or changed by the political winds that the scriptures would be taught truthfully and honestly, and that they would therefore remain transformative for all of God's people. It's for this reason that he committed himself to these underground seminaries, to ensuring that the next generation would continue to understand and be able to teach the Old and the New Testaments exactly as they were written. Is our commitment to scripture the absolute foundation of our faith? And finally, we're invited to ask this question, How does my life look different? Not only are the scriptures foundational for Paul, but they're also wholly usable for changing lives. Paul says it this way. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, Scripture can not only teach us what's true about God, his world, and our neighbors, but it can also refute false teaching and straighten out what seems unclear. It also continuously teaches us what it looks like to pursue righteousness both with God and with our neighbor. And it provides us with what we need in order to teach us to stand in opposition to the lies and untruths of our time, equipping us not only to believe, but to be able to do what's right. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves, therefore, is if scripture and following Jesus impacts the way we live in this way, do we truly look different than those who don't pursue Jesus? And is that difference helping to bring God's kingdom and its principles here on earth? Bonhoeffer's underground seminaries, they formed pastors and leaders for the church who stood in radical opposition to the rule and reign of the Nazi party that correctly taught the scriptures that they could stand on a firm foundation to oppose the lies and proclaim God's truth. These foundations form us and others to live in alignment with our memory verse for this series, which comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. This work though, it is not promised to be easy. And it's guaranteed that at times it's going to cost us. For Bonhoeffer, it led him to several difficult decisions that actually cost him his life. The first is out of fear of having to swear an oath to Hitler or face arrest, Bonhoeffer actually fled to the United States. Less than two years later, he became convicted by what he saw as an inability to actually practice this radical Christ-centered bravery that he had spent all this time calling others in the German church towards. And so he went back to Germany. Publicly questioning his previous insistence of pacifism, He was made privy to several plots to assassinate Hitler, and he actually participated in smuggling Jews out of Germany into safety. And it was for these activities that he was arrested and then served time in Tegel, Buchenwald, and Flossenburg. And one month, just one month, before the Nazis surrendered, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged for his activities opposing the Nazi party. But even in prison, and even before his hanging, Bonhoeffer's firm foundation shone through to those who were imprisoned with him. One fellow prisoner remarked this. He said, Bonhoeffer was just different. 
just quite calm and normal, seemingly perfectly at ease. His soul really shone in the dark desperation of our prison. He was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. The camp doctor, a witness to Bonhoeffer's execution, he had this to say about this young, brave theologian. He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. And I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he said again a short prayer, and then he climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds, and in the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. What could lead Bonhoeffer in the face of such opposition to remain so steadfast? What could lead him to calmly accept his fate, to still be such an example of God's goodness and grace in the darkest places of the Nazi prisons and camps? He knew the future that awaited him. His last words relayed through a fellow inmate were this. He said, this is the end for me the beginning of life. This different way of living, committed to the truth of the gospel and living it out in Christian community, it cost Bonhoeffer his life. But Bonhoeffer found, like so many others have, that losing his life for the sake of the gospel and its integrity meant gaining everything. It meant gaining the resurrection life that Jesus promised on the cross when he said, it is finished not only in eternity, but also in the physical. You see, resurrection is foundational to the life of a living martyr. The belief that at the end of all things, resurrection is coming, it frees us from fear of death. But we also believe that all things are being resurrected even now, that the kingdom has come and the kingdom will come and the kingdom is coming. And it's with these strong foundations that we can, as the covenant book of worship reminds us, work with God and with God's people for a better world, more responsive to truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example that people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer set. God, give us the same level of courage and bravery to be able to stand in opposition to lies and to be able to speak your scriptural truth. And God, let us understand our role in bringing the kingdom here on earth, God. Help us to be people who are hungry for your word and hungry for your world to experience the transformation that you've promised. And so God, begin the transformation in us so that we can transform the world. And we pray, amen.